Now, as some of you know, I don't know if you know this, but I'm actually a missionary. That's not only a pastor, I'm also a missionary. And what that means is that I get to go to churches. Part of what that means, it means much more than this, but part of what that means is I get to go to different churches and um, tell them all the great things that God is doing at our church, and they support me. So, you know, you go, oh, I'm not going to give to that church because he's going to buy a Cadillac. Well, you know, it's not just you supporting me. And, of course, this church does give me a salary, but uh, it gets supplemented by other churches all throughout the United States, right? And so it's wonderful. But one time I went to this church, and, you know, you don't, you're not supposed to talk about other people's houses when you go to them, right? Right? But I went to this church, and I'm not going to tell you where it was or when it was, but I went to this church, and immediately I was struck by how kind the people were to me and how little they liked each other. <laughs> it was striking. I mean, salt-of-the-earth people, beautiful people, lovely people. People give you the shirt off their backs and could not, I mean, it seemed like they couldn't even stomach each other. Well, I, I went to the church. I did what I do. You know, I shared about what God was doing here. I tried to teach the Bible and uh, asked them to support us and all that. And I left. And five years later, the pastor had left the church, the church who had been there for a long, long time, shut its doors. And that community lost. And Satan was rejoicing and the world could care less. And everything that you don't want to happen to a community of faith happened to that community of faith. People's hearts were broken. The gospel witness of Jesus Christ was muted on that corner. I don't know what that building even is anymore. They could have torn it down. There were cornfields all around it. They could have sold, honestly, they could have sold it to a neighbor. Uh, and, and right now it could be growing corn for all I know. The reason I bring that up is because that is the default nature of every group of people who come together. The default nature of every group of people that come together is strife, self-centeredness, a me-focus, an intentionality about getting my way. This is a natural, a natural thing that happens to churches. Now, what we're going to, we're in a series called The Way of Love. And in this series, we've been talking about how God, who is love, shows us love and leads us to share our love. And where we're going to focus today is not just bringing our love to our neighbors, although, oh my gosh, you can't do that enough. You can't overdo love, real love. You know, you ever heard somebody said, oh, I just love too much? Tell them, that ain't love. That ain't love. If it, listen, listen, listen. The only person we could ever say that about is Jesus. He, I mean, and aren't you glad he did? We don't love too much. The fact is, is that our love is too needy and self-centered and fractured. 
And therefore, it becomes something other than love, like manipulation or codependence or something other than love. So we've been talking about how we should love our neighbors and love our coworkers and love our families. But what I want to talk to you is about loving one another. Loving one another with the love that Christ gives. Because I know, I know right now, this second, there are people who are not sitting in particular rows because of that person. And I know that there are people right now who are listening to my sermon. As I speak to you, there are people that you go, well, I'm going to say hello to them, but, you know, I'm not going to, like, go out of my way. In other words, there's a tension. You can't get in a group, you can't get in a group this big, and you can't get in a congregation that's this way. You know what I mean by this way? Like, we don't even handshake, we hug, and it's all very, like, if you're an introvert like me, it's all very difficult to get along, and it's like, oh, okay, I hug you, of course I will. Um, but you can't get into a congregation like this without having some, some sense of strife. And you know what really, really immature people do when they get into strife like that within the community of faith? They leave. They leave. And you know what other immature people do? They stay. And they don't grow. They don't humble themselves. And they don't pursue truth in Christ. What they do is they stay bitter. And it's interesting. Bitterness is, is like, bitterness is like um, leaven. You know, it just permeates the whole, just a little bit of leaven permeates the whole batch of bread. You can't just put leaven on this side. Or, or more like poison, right? If I brought you a plate of your favorite meal, like what's your favorite meal? And I just said, don't worry, I just put poison on the, this corner of the plate, right? You wouldn't eat it, would you? No, of course you wouldn't. And the reason that you wouldn't is because you realize that even if there's poison on this, it, poison has a way of permeating through everything. The poison that the church experiences is strife, is bitterness. Let me tell you something. You'll hear on the news pastors having terrible, pastors running away with their like assistants. Haven't you heard that? Right? Like pastors running away with their secretaries or their assistants, right? And you'll hear about pastors stealing money and all that other stuff. Let me tell you something. For the most part, those churches survive. But I tell you, a church that's full of gossip and bitterness, a church that's full of strife and contention, those cats can't last long. Those cats, they, they kill churches. And when churches die, when churches die, all of eternity hangs in the balance. Not just for your well-being, but for an eternity. And so it's really important what we're talking about here. Because if this church would have died just five years ago, most of you wouldn't be here. If this church died five years ago, most of you wouldn't have gotten an invitation to walk in Christ. If this church died five years ago, then most of you right now would not be experiencing the joy that you experience in Christ. So this message is not so much for the people that are here, but for the people who will be here five years from now. And if we're going to prepare for them, then we're going to have to go against our default system, which is to have me, 
be the center of everything, me, be the focus of everything, me, be the, just the point where everything has to conform. We have to, we have to be Christ-centered. So, I want you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to see a beautiful, a be- it's my favorite chapter in all the Bible. Um, we're not going to read the whole chapter. We're just going to read the first maybe five verses because um, we, we simply can't go through the whole thing. And you know what? We have to 11. We'll read all the way through 11. And then we'll only pick at maybe verses 1 through 4 because it's just so deep. We could spend 11 weeks on just these 11 verses. And so you could spend a lifetime, honestly. Um, and so we're going to read this together. One of our traditions is to stand at the reading of God's word. We just think that God is so wonderful that we're going to honor him um, when we read his word. Okay. I'll read the first four verses, and then you read verses 5 through 11. Is that fair? All right. So I'll read the first four verses. You jump in at verse 5. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue, and every tongue, and every tongue confess. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's Word. Have a seat. So we see that the default nature of the church is for strife, is for self-centeredness, is for something other than submission to Christ. You know how else we know this? This letter was written to one of the healthiest churches that uh, is found in the New Testament. In fact, this is the only letter that Paul writes that's not dealing with a specific heresy. Paul, in this letter, Paul is an apostle. Apostle is a sent one from Christ. He's a servant and a sent one from Christ, and he's uh, starting churches everywhere. When he writes to this church, and boy, if you want to see, I mean, look at the Corinthian church. He's like, he barely gets an introduction out. Look at the Galatian church. 
He barely gets an introduction. He's like, hey, my name is Paul. Hope you guys are well. And what are you thinking? It's like, you know, it's like, you know, one of those, right? I'm telling you, with this church, he just, got, man, every time I think of you guys, I thank God for you. He gushes over them. And even in the best church that Paul, the apostle, could you imagine, right? Like, I, you have me as your pastor. Could you imagine having Paul, the apostle, as your pastor? His, the church that God planted through him, he's afraid that disunity is going to creep in. He's afraid that strife is going to take over. He's afraid, he's concerned that they won't love each other to the degree where the world will be marveled by their love. Because we're not just supposed to listen to me. We're not supposed to just tolerate one another. The world does that. We're supposed to love one another. And Paul sends this letter to a church that in every way looks like one of the best churches in the history of churches and yet needs to be reminded of this message. Recovery House of Worship, you need to be reminded of this message as well. You go, oh, I'm going to, you know what? I'm just going to count light bulbs. This is not really for me. I get along with everybody. You're the person that I'm talking to. The person sitting in your seat. I'm talking to the person wearing your shirt. We need to love each other. We need to go out of our way to love one another. So let's look at this passage. Therefore, now, whenever, we've said this before, right? Whenever you see a therefore, you always ask, what's the therefore, therefore, right? So whenever you read the text, you want to read it carefully. And so whenever you see therefore or wherefore or anything like that, you go, what was said prior to this? Well, Paul was talking about um, in their presentation towards the entire world. Guys, I want you to walk in a way that is worthy of the calling of Christ. That means when you are on the train, when you are at your job, when you are um, wherever you are, in home, at work, everywhere. Walk in a way that people take note. That people go, no kidding, really. You, there's something different about you. Because everybody else tolerates, but you seem to go beyond that to love. And so um, Paul speaks about that, and he says, since that's true, since you're going to be loving in every area, you're going to be representing Christ, because Christ is your all in all. Since that's true, then he goes on. He says, if you have any, I love this, this is so good. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete. Now listen. Paul is using this word if, not like as a question, but as a, as a matter of fact. You've done this before, right? Maybe you've done it with your kids. You say something like this. Listen, if you love me at all, you'll pick up your clothes from the floor. Right? Have you ever said something or ever heard something like that? You're not saying, I wonder if you love me. And I would, what you're saying is, is that I believe that you love me. Since you love me, your actions will be thus and such. 
If, listen, if you love me at all, let's just talk this out and let's not do the silent treatment one more day, right? If you, right we're not saying that they don't love us. We're saying since I believe you love me, then this should produce an effect. That's what Paul is doing here. He's not saying that Christ maybe comforts or maybe doesn't comfort. He's not saying that Christ encourages sometimes and sometimes doesn't encourage. We're not sure. What he's saying is, since this is true about every person who comes to Christ, there should be an outflow. There should be a byproduct. There should be something that happens. You know why? Listen, this is why. Because love causes unity. Love causes unity. Say that with me. Love causes unity. If you are in Christ and in love with Christ, and Christ has loved you well, then that produces something. And what it does is it produces a group of people who love each other well. Not a group of people who are um, uh, flocking to hear some speaker. No, 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 no. Love doesn't do that. Good night, right? There's going to be a... Listen, listen, there are mosques and temples today filled with people who are running to hear a speaker. There are Christian churches that, listen, even Jesus doesn't bother showing up to. Who flock to hear a teacher. What produces unity is not a speaker. It's not a program. It's not a set of musicians. What produces the unity in the church is love. Because love causes unity. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from Jesus' love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. Somebody say like-minded. Having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Look. So, this passage could be taken one of two ways. The theologians, right? Because you have to study this stuff, right? I, can't, I just can't come up here and wing it to you. You have to actually study the text, right? And so, um, there are two ways that um, theologians take this passage. Some of them say that this is Paul's love, um, Paul's Christ-centered love to the church. And others say, no, 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 this is Christ's direct love to the church, and all of it doesn't matter, because it's all Christ's love. Because I don't know if you know, but Paul was hunting down Christians. Did you know this? You didn't know this. Um, Paul was actually hunting down Christians, hunting down Christians to kill them and incarcerate them. And now he's planting churches. The only thing that can do that is not Paul's love. It's Christ's love. So whether they were loved by Christ through Paul's encouragement, comfort, and affection, or they were loved directly by Christ through his love, it's all Christ. And so Paul says, if that's true, then be like-minded. In other words, have the same mind of Christ. Having the same love. Let me ask you something. What was Jesus' love like? If you could put it in one word, what would you say Jesus' love is like? 
unconditional, perfect, obedient, self-sacrificing. That's what Jesus' love was like. And so he's calling you, listen to me, listen to me. Bitterness does not stay contained. Unforgiveness is not compartmentalized. If you have bitterness towards a family member, don't be shocked if that bitterness doesn't travel to friends. And Unforgiveness does the same thing. Paul says, I don't want you to pretend. I don't want you to act just as if. I want you to have the same mind, the same love, being one in spirit. And in case you didn't get it in the first place, and of one mind. See, this is of incredible importance. Because when you have the mind of Christ, you're not looking to get your way. When you have the mind of Christ, then them not knowing who you are is not that important. When you have the mind of Christ, then you don't just tolerate. You love. You know why? Because love causes unity. And he goes on to verse 3. He says this. He's trying to explain to them exactly how you do this. Okay, so you get the point, right? What do we do? What's the point today? We're going to love. Why? Because love causes unity. That's the big idea today. You could leave. That's it. That's what we want to know. Now, how do we do that? Because here's the thing. You don't. You don't. And neither do I. I am so easily offended. I literally remember, man, I remember going up to a person and saying, it was like six months I didn't talk to them. Six months. And I, and I, and I finally, like, right, I'm a Christian, so I finally went up to him and I said, you know what? Jesus has forgiven and loved me, man. I just want to, you know, I don't think I said exactly that. I think I was like, hey, man. <laughs> I think it was more like that. Um, and I said, hey, you know, I felt like that there's been a tension between us. Um, uh, I felt like there's been a tension between us for these six months. And he turned to me and he said, really? I had no idea. Why? And I, I felt stupid at that point. I said, it's not that big of a deal. Why? Because it was in my head. It was in my head. Because I didn't have the mind of Christ. Let's say it's the worst possible thing. They meant to. They planned to. It was premeditated. The evil things that they did to me were awful and terrible and, and, and intentional. Then have the same mind of Christ. Well, how did Christ deal those who were intentionally and premeditatively uh, hurtful and evil to him? How did he deal with them? Practically speaking, he prayed for them. He said, God, would you forgive them? Just they're clueless as to what they're really doing. See, because love doesn't just tolerate. Love causes unity. And he says this. Now he tells us, how do we do this? Here it is. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Now, let me tell you something. What Paul is about to say in this verse, he says it in two ways. He says it's selfish ambition and vain uh, conceit. I'm telling you, if we get this as a church, we... We will not have enough space in the world to, able, to be able to 
house the people who will want to know what God is doing in our midst. It just won't be possible. You will have more family members than you know what to do with in Christ if we get this. Here it is. Selfish uh, ambition. What selfish ambition is, is a person who lives with their life as as having needs be more important than the truth. Okay, let me tell you what I mean by that. Okay, when you live in Christ, you have the truth before your needs. Husbands, I'm talking to you. Wives, I'm talking to you. Arhau, I'm talking to you. When you are self, when you're ambitious for yourself, you have selfish ambition. What you do is you say things like, but what about, somebody finish this sentence, but what about me? Why? Because their needs are more important than the truth. My needs. My, and you go, oh, but what? If I don't look out for me, who do? Listen, if you don't look out for you, if you ask the question, if you don't look out for you, who's going to look out for you? The same person who's looked out for you while you were in your mother's womb, Christ has looked out for you. So far, he's done a fantastic job in my life and in my family's life. I encourage you to stop looking out for you. You're horrible at it. It's terrible when you look out for you. Oh, it's awful. So the person who with selfish ambition has needs before the truth. So, here's what it is. They get offended, right? So here's what happens. I get offended, and I'm in Christ. And rather than going to Christ and saying, Christ, I'm in you, can you remind me how I've sinned against you so that I don't get self-righteous with this person? Oh, I'll forgive them. Well, how many times am I supposed to forgive? And how many, right? Only the self-righteous say things like that. I know there's no self-righteous people here. And so, rather than going to Christ and saying, God, remind me of how I've sinned against you. Oh, but they didn't tell me the truth. And I never lie to people. Oh, yeah? Jesus, tell me about all the times that I've told you, I swear, if you get me out of this one, I will never, and I will always, and I will, right? I'm telling you guys, I'm telling you, it's, when you see that you've sinned in the same way to Jesus and he's washed you, showered you, taken you a bath in his love, then you can extend that to, the, to this person who's making your life difficult, who's not telling you the truth. Now, I have to say this. When I'm speaking of this, there are people here in this room right now, there are two types of people who take God word, God's word seriously and, um, man, I'm trying to think of the nicest way I could say this. Uh, and, 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 and manipulators. And what you're going to do is because you're the abuser, you're the one who takes advantage of people, what you're going to do is take what I'm teaching today and use it to beat your husband with it. And use it to beat your wife with it. Oh, but you're supposed to forgive me. Hey, let me tell you something. This is a sermon for the person in your seat. This is not a sermon for you to try to share with any. No Bible studies for anybody else, beloved. 
this one's for you. If you're sharing this with someone else, I guarantee you, you didn't get it. If you have to tell somebody else, well, you have to forgive me because you're in Christ and don't have selfish ambition, don't put your needs before the church. You know, if you're doing that, if you're doing that, you've missed the point. You fall into the manipulative category. Christ is not in you. Run to him, beg for forgiveness, and ask for mercy for your soul. But for those of us who desperately want to uh, follow and take God's word seriously, we don't want to, what we do want to do is we want to have the truth before our needs. Yes, it's true you've offended me. Yes, it's true you hurt my feelings. I'm not going to explain it away. I'm not going to do what the world does, right? I'm not going to lash out and I'm not going to go inward. I'm not going to do, right? I'm not going to ignore it like it never happened and I'm not going to explode like a lunatic. What I am, however, going to do is I'm going to acknowledge that this is real and this is true. And just like I needed Christ's forgiveness, you need mine. And I extend it to you gladly because I'm a forgiven person who needs to forgive as well. I have putting the truth before my needs. You'll find this in congregations. Oh, but the pastor couldn't meet with me. Oh, but the leader said that they would, you know, they, they skipped out on that meeting. Oh, but I volunteered for this and they didn't follow up fast enough. Listen to me. Put the truth before your needs. Man, if you come to the recovery house of worship, I'm going to tell you what you're going to find is a, what you're going to find is, is a lot of broken people. Right? You're going to find people who, I'm telling you, I'm talking about me here. We've got to. We've got to put the truth before our needs. Make sense? Okay. Secondly, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. This word is, is it's interesting. In the King James, if you have a King James Bible, it translates this vain glory. Vain glory. Do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain glory. Isn't that an interesting word? Vain glory. The reason is because is this word is really, really, really tough to translate. And I think the King James gets it pretty good. It's vain glory. In other words, it's empty glory. Every one of us are glory hungry. Every one of us look to have, you know why? Because God made you in his image. Do you know why people will go on television and make fools of themselves in these reality shows and do it for fame? Have you ever seen anything like that? People just make absolute fools of them. Have you ever seen yourself get really upset when you didn't get the credit that you deserved? Sure. You know why? It's actually a natural reason. You were created in the image of God, full of glory. And sin marred that. And so now, rather than pursuing God's glory, what we do is we, in a sinful way, pursue our own way of getting glory. Rather than lifting God up and whether God wants to or not, let him lift us up, what we do is we look for our own glory. It's vain glory. It's vain conceit. Everybody is glory empty. And you know what happens? The worst thing that can happen to a glory empty person is that they get exactly what they thought would make them happy. It's the worst thing that can happen. Because you get, it's like, um, have you ever seen the movie Chariots of Fire? It's um, 
It's a great movie, like won all sorts of awards. It's years and years and years ago. It's about, I think, the Flying Scotsman. His name was Eric Liddell, right? And uh, Eric Liddell was training for, um, I think it was like a 100-meter dash. It's like a fast race, right? Well, it was on a Sunday, and he had a conviction that he was not to work on a Sunday, that Sunday was the Lord's Day. And so he had worked his entire life for this Olympic moment, and he told, he asked the officials for uh, if they could change the day, and they said, no, we couldn't do that. It'll make a precedence. It'll create a precedence. And so he refused to run. And it turned out that one of his teammates got injured. And if he could run in the one-mile race. Now, I don't need to tell you that there's a difference between 100 yards and a mile. I mean, there's a different way you train, different muscles in your legs that you use. It's a totally different thing. But he goes on the line, and he's doing it for God's glory. In fact, he says it in the movie. It's really beautiful. His sister is, is complaining to him. He goes, you should get on the mission field. You love Jesus, and you want to proclaim Christ. And he goes, I will get on the mission field, but right now, this is what I know. God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. Isn't that good? That's living a life. And some of you men, some of you women, right, and men too, right, when you cook, you feel God's pleasure, right? God made you this way. It's, it's something that comes from out of you. Well, he gets, he gets on the starting line. And what, how is he going to do? Is he going to come in last place? He's, this is the Olympics. There's not like a whole lot of room for error here. What does he do? He, he gets there. An American who's not in his country comes over to him, and he gives him a piece of paper. And he says this. The paper says this. Them that honor me they will I honor. Them that honor me, they will I honor. You see, we don't want to be hungry for glory. We want to be hungry for God. And if God wants to bring us, um, if God wants to bring us honor and all that, then that's what we do. We just honor God. Then he says this, in humility, Value others above yourself. Now, this word humility is unbelievably powerful. The word humility here, it's actually an offensive word. Nowhere is it used in ancient literature as a positive thing. Nowhere. In fact, there's, there's no way to say... Th- this word meant being like a slave or uh, powerless or... You know, like, it's like the lowest man. Nobody wants to be humiliated. Nobody wants to be humble. In humility, Paul uses it, though, in a very positive way. It would be as if I said to you today, um, you would be shocked if you read this in the first century. If it, was, it would be as if I said to you today, um, don't bother with self-esteem. Like, people would be like, what do you mean? And by the way, I don't want you to bother with self-esteem. I want you to bother with esteeming God in the highest which goes back to our original point that we just made a few seconds ago. Glorify God and let him honor you. In humility, value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interest, but each of you looking to the interests of others. Now, listen to me. What is the basis that we can do this? And we're going to do this and we're going to go. 
The basis is what Paul said before. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united in Christ. Because you're in Christ, you can then put others first. Say that with me. If we're in Christ, we can put others first. We don't have to worry about our way. So here's how it works. For the Christian, what happens is, is that pretty much the whole world is just like this. Pretty bland. Everybody's like the same, right? Full of sin, full of their own way. They're like these cups of water, right? And so what Christ is, and and these cups represent you and the rest of the world and other environments as well. So what Christ does is he comes into the life of an individual and he changes them. He transforms them. They no longer look the same. In fact, people notice, they go, why aren't you? Why aren't you like the rest of us? We're different. And now what happens is, is that people who are in Christ, they're in Christ, you and me. This is going to be fun. We're in Christ. God says that should affect everyone else you meet. That because, remember, we're in Christ. He's changed us. And so no matter where else we go, because we're in Christ, we change the communities around us. The places that we go are never the same. Our church doesn't look like the sinful places that other people congregate. Rather, our church starts to change. Because wherever we go, because we're in Christ, we transform everyone around us. Beloved, love causes unity. And because we are in Christ, he does something in us that affects people outside of us. But you know the reason? Do you know the reason that you have Christ in you and that you can do this in you? It's because what he's done outside of you. Because, listen, you could try, try as much as you like to put people first in your own strength and you'll eventually run out. Try to put your marriage, just as simple as your kids, you'll eventually run out. Listen to me. But if we walk in Christ, being reminded about how Christ has loved us, forgiven us, washed over us, then we can love, forgive, and even wash over others. I want that for you. So, here's what I have for you to do. Those of you Um, who are here. There might be people right now in this room that you have a problem with. And you wouldn't call it that. You would call it something else. You would say, well, I just don't talk to them. I just avoid them. I just... Now, true, there are dangerous people that we need to avoid. No kidding. That's just using wisdom. Like, you know, there's... There are some people that are just dangerous and we need to, you know... 
We need to just protect ourselves from dangerous people. But if you have a strife, and it doesn't fall to the category of dangerous person, okay? Within this congregation, would you just not be satisfied to just sit in a different row? Would you be able to ask Jesus to get your identity from Jesus, getting your rest from Jesus, and then out of the outflow? And, and listen, here's what it looks like to me. Someone sins against me, here's what it looks like. I go to that person and I say, brother, sister, I feel like there's some trust cracks between us. I feel like there's some relational gaps between us. And I just want to confess to you my part. I have not pursued you in love. I have not sought Christ's love to extend to you. Would you please forgive me for that? Actually, I, I take that back. I wouldn't ask for forgiveness. I would simply say, I haven't pursued you with Christ's love, and it's not right, and I want to start doing differently. Can we work on that together? Don't ask for forgiveness, because when you ask for forgiveness, what you do is you, you put another burden on someone. Don't, don't do it. Just, just confess. Right? You confess it. And then, now watch this. The immature person will go and wait for them to go, oh, you know, I too sinned against you. And the immature person does that. I don't want you to do that. I don't want you to wait for them to say, no, no, no. That's not the point. The point is, is that love is overflowing in your heart. And so here's how I want you to do that. I want you to simply Get with Christ. Because this, remember, has to overflow. This is not something you can force yourself to do. It must overflow. And so, you get with Christ, and you pray, and you go, God, how have you forgiven? How have you loved? How have you... And then you let that overflow on your brothers and sisters. Jesus has loved me so well. I just want to love you well, too. I'm telling you guys, if we walked around with this kind of love, it would change us forever. It would change us forever. I want that for you. So, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for you. But as I'm praying for you, I want you to pray for yourself. I want you to ask God for forgiveness. For the ill will, for the disunity that you've been causing in this church. I want you to take it personal. And ask Him to fill you with love and then extend unity. Why? Because Love causes unity. I want you to extend that unity to those who are not only in this congregation, but let it go even farther. So would you pray for yourselves? I'll pray for you as well.